Welcome, I'm Judy DL, and it's Christmas Eve. We're here to keep you company, whether you've got a little bit too much of it and want to escape into some me time, or whether you're having a bit of a COVID-y Christmas and don't have quite enough, we're here to keep you company. Pop your earbuds in, take yourself off to the kitchen if you need to and do the dishes, I guarantee you'll be left alone. We've got a good episode for you. We're encouraging you to reach out, take it easy, and be there for each other. If this is the first time you've tuned in to Radioactive Cockroach, you deserve a bit of an explanation as to why I identify as a radioactive cockroach. Those of us who live with the impact of sexual assault know what it is to feel a little bit cockroachy, like we should just scuttle back under the fridge. We also know what it's like to feel a bit radioactive, that people might recoil from us, like we can maybe cause some kind of unseen harm. But we are also, as radioactive cockroaches, the ultimate survivors. We avoid explicit and triggering details here, But if anything you hear today, or anywhere else for that matter, raises worrying issues for you or for someone you love, we encourage you to call in Australia 1800RESPECT, the Samaritans on 11 61 23 in the UK, and in the US 1800 273 TALK. These and other resources are on our Facebook page and podcast feed. I'm from New York. It's a weird place. You guys are from New York too? Oh, wow. Okay, you seem, you're from New York. You don't seem happy to be here. You are, oh, like they're like, we are happy to be here. He's like, I'm in a hostage situation. (laughs) Whatever she says. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. You're from New York. I feel like you would be really good at my day job back in New York. I work at a sex dungeon, so... (laughs) You got that dominant female energy. Well, that clip is Catherine Henson, and she found herself in super hard lockdown here in Melbourne and had a chat on Zoom with Stutzo and me. Judy Stutz and I are really grateful for the technology of Zoom. We've made our peace with it. We've connected to it. And now we welcome all of you and the wonderful Catherine Henson to... Lay down. Burden of your heart. I know you'll never miss it. It's too heavy. It's too heavy. Put it down. Here. Here. It's lighter when you let go, isn't it? So, welcome, cockroaches, to Cockroach Relief, and welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. Oh, with, with, I don't. I think we can out excite you on this one, can't we, Judy Stutz? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. stuck in Melbourne. Yeah. I mean, this is right now the most human interaction I've had in at least. Well, I don't even know. I've lost track of time. So. Oh well, look, oh. we'll be as human as possible, um, <laughs> and, and try to behave humanely. How, did you ever experience Melbourne without a lockdown? No. Oh. No. Oh, now yeah. that's tragic. It really, it's, it's almost, it, it's tragic. That's a word for it. When I think about it in full, I'm like, this is really hilarious because I've been here six months. I flew here. It's winter. I basically came to Australia to watch Netflix. Oh. And that's, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like it's too horrible. So it's like funny, you know? Yeah. Well, I hope we can make it funny. Yeah. Yeah, but, oh, definitely. So, so have you managed to just sort of get out of the, wherever you're staying and walk around at all or um I yeah I mean especially at the beginning I did a lot of just walking I actually know the city really well oh good I just I just have never I've never done anything inside the walls that I passed um I've only kind of recently come around to realizing I I shouldn't it's kind of I'm done feeling sorry for myself you know for like the hopes and dreams of the year like the whole reason I'm in Australia yeah. You know? Yeah. Like Comedy happen. festival. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and like right now I, I should be at the fringe, you know, in Scotland. Like, yeah. But it's kind of, 
but you know, and so I really stalked a lot about it and kind of struggled through it. And then I'm kind of like, you know, it's sort of up to me to make the best of this at this point. Yeah. Like all of the hardships of it all, which, you know, there, there are quite a few, I'm kind of like, well, you know, you, you just got to like, eventually write something funny about it, you know, <laughs> that's all you can do. Yeah. <laughs> Coming to terms with like, there's self growth that I have to do during this. That was like, so unexpected, you know, yeah. like when you're, when you have everything planned and, but like, once you do that and like, accept that, you know, like, and then do it, I don't know. It, it could be very interesting to see who I am at the end of this, yeah. you know, like finding yeah. a whole new reason to get up in the morning. Like yeah. that for me was doing stand up comedy. Mm-hmm. and that's over for the foreseeable future you know and yeah. it's not like it's over forever but like if you're really looking at it you don't know so clinging to that doesn't work anymore so it's kind of like well what else do I like it's not exactly a you know a journey anybody asked for but like if you accept it and do it you know you might find out something new about yourself that yeah. then you can write about later have you been talking to many people with an Australian accent Catherine you incidentally no um, you know, I knew a couple of comedians from, from Australia that I met at the fringe last year, but like really the majority of people I've interacted with here, like the people that I, or like we were living with and then that we knew were English, French, Irish, and Sri Lankan. Yeah. We ended up staying with a couple that my husband stayed with here two years ago. Yeah. Um, and we were just supposed to stay with for like the festival and then we ended up living with them for four months. Yes. Um, so, you know, they're not comedians, which, you know, it's an interesting, I think that's been kind of a weird challenge for me here. It's like, you know, I have an apartment back in New York. I have a life, I have 15 years worth of stuff, but then here I'm effectively like lower than a college student. I'm like, (laughs) can I please rent the room and like I didn't pack for the winter here and those were and you know it's very odd to also like live with people that you didn't really choose like you know when you're doing a festival you're like I'm sleeping here that's it you know living with people is very different than just sort of floating in and out of everybody's life Mm. it was fun though they let us get married in their backyard I got married here oh congratulations congratulations. yeah Yeah. Yeah. you know it filled an afternoon it was was um my now husband and I, we had, we were going to get married at the fringe this year mm-hmm. and he flew here to also do the festival and he's Irish and I'm American. And once we got stuck here, we were kind of like looking at the reality and we were like, well, if we were to leave here, we might like, he can't get into America, yeah, you know, and mm-hmm. whether or not I, and so we were like, well, let's get married now. I mean, we were doing it in August anyway. And our lawyer was like, if you can get married in Australia, do it. And I got to say, surprisingly easy to get married in this country. Well, look, you didn't even have to declare yourself to be a same-sex couple. So, yeah. I I mean, you just had, all they want to make sure is that you're not related. And then you're you're good to go. (laughs) Well, you are now. But look, yeah, we just wondered how you're going with the Australian accent. We just... Why not? Yeah. I mean, that was one thing that I find different is Australians do ask, how are you going? How are you going? Yeah. How, yeah, yeah. How are you doing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, I'm, I'm like, what do you mean going where? You know? And, <laughs> but then I'm like, oh, you mean, how are you doing? If someone said, with spring coming on, how are you finding the blowies? What would you imagine? What? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know about you. I, I'll just put it this way. I once had a coworker named Joe and one time he said to himself, but I heard it, he said, Joey wants a blowy. And that's how I would. That's how you'd imagine it. Yeah. Well, look, relax because, well, no, it depends on your preference. They're actually big, fat flies. Blowfly. Okay. So if someone says, look out for the blowies. Yeah. You know know what you're in for. Okay. (laughs) Did you have one? Uh, yeah. Um, what do you respond if somebody asks you, well, would you like a long neck? A long neck? Well, I mean, I'd be like, how much? You know, I do have like the Irish gobble double chin. I would take a, a nice talk. <laughs> long neck is a bottle of beer with a uh, long neck. A big a bo- oh, okay. A long neck as opposed to a stubby. In America, we call the 16 ounce tall boys. Yeah, and I can't remember, but people find that very funny. Okay, tall boy. Well, yeah, tall a tall boy. boy here is a chest of drawers. 
that's just, I mean, it, it's a good thing we know now yeah. because you, you, you start getting confused. Like, let me get a tall boy and suddenly you have something for my, an Ikea delivery. Yeah. <laughs> You're flat like, pack. Flat pack. Like, yeah. I just wanted a beer. <laughs> Do you know, have, has anyone talked to you about dead certs? They're going to, they're going to have the comedy festival on in 20, 2021, dead cert. Oh, so like, like certainly like for, for certain sure or for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's a dead cert. Dead yeah. Cert. I've got a really okay. good tip at the races. It's a dead cert. Dead cert, it's usually got a, a sense of maybe about it. Yeah, a, a bit like it's a gambler's thing, a dead cert. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's the guy at the party who's trying to get you to join this pyramid scheme. Yep. Going like, yeah, it's nuts, dead yeah. cert, okay. mate. Not, not dead cert. Dead gotcha. cert, yep. We just wondered if you could, yeah. if, you, if you'd be interested in just doing a little spelling bee on some Australianisms. Okay. okay. Yeah, we could give it a shot. I'm going to spell these things out, out for you. S-P-E-W-F-F-L-E. Spewful? Yeah, spewful. Okay, C-L-I-M-B-A. Lima. And now T-R-E-E-L-Y. Treely. Okay. So put those together. Spewful climate treely. Yes, it is. Spewful climate treely. I know you're here in winter, but spewful climate treely. It's in beautiful climate really? That's is it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, spewful climate wow. treely. Wow. Yeah. Um, when now, is the spring? Soon. Next month. <laughs> Next month. First of September. So, yeah. yeah. Think autumn and then just basically reverse everything. So if it's fall, where you come from, spring here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, the winter. So because I, I came from like New York and London. Yeah. So this is my second winter and then I'm flying away for my third winter. For your third so winter. Yeah. 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 And I didn't know it got cold in Australia. Uh, like, yeah. You pick the people, one city where it does. Oh, no, Hobart. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I think we've got more listeners in New York than in Hobart yeah. probably. We're getting quite a uh, – well, you know, we're not allowed to say cluster anymore, but it a is cadre. a – a cadre or something of um, followers in New York, which is nice. Do you think it's just the accent? <laughs> it, I definitely. I will say, like, it, it's funny. I've had enough of my friends not only be like, "I didn't know it was cold in Australia." What do you mean winter? And I'm like, "Yeah, it's it's a thing." And then two, they, they'll ask me about like Americans don't know a lot about Australia. No, no, we that. know that. Like, yeah. It, <laughs> Yeah, and and you do know that it's funny. I was walking behind uh, a father and son. Uh, he, the dad, had picked his kid up from school, and the dad was explaining. I guess the kid did a project where they named the group "A Dingo Ate My Taco," and the dad was like, "Do you know where the phrase that phrase comes from?" And the kid, you know, didn't. So the father explained where "A Dingo Ate My Baby" comes from, and then he was like, "That's one of three things Americans." know about australia okay they know <laughs> this, this man like says this to his son he's like they know about kangaroos then snakes and spiders and whatever and then a dingo ate my baby and that's all they that's know that's about and it I was yeah like, yeah fair enough well, you know i yeah even though it's a spewful climate truly do you think you'll be needing e double g egg yeah and now <laughs> n-i-s-h-n-a nishna nishna egg nishna Agnishna. Yeah. So it's beautiful climate, really, but do you think you're going to need an Agnishna? An air conditioner. Ah, you got it. Wow. I don't. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I don't even. How do you learn to spell that? (laughs) Oh, look. Is it just phonetic? It's it's from a book by a guy who called himself Affabec Lauder. And it was okay. a book called Let's Talk Strine. Um, wow. So it, it was transliterating the Australian accent um, for humour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it was interesting, especially at first, like when I got here, you know, because we were living with this couple and he's English, she was French. And then, you know, my husband is Irish. And when they were all having a conversation, I found it hard to... Like, it was like, they all seemed to be able to understand each other's accents Mm -hmm. very naturally. But I was like straining to understand. And it makes you, I'm like sitting there and I'm like, am I an idiot? You know, they're not even talking about anything (laughs) complex, but I'm like, like, I was like, I've lost track. Like, I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. And 
it is interesting because, you know, even living in New York, you think you're surrounded by so many different types of people and cultures all the time and you are, but really it's very different when you're actually around people yeah. or from and have like, you know, a very deep accent, I guess. Is that how you describe it? Yeah, look, I blame the sitcom producers for this very mild disability you have because um, in America they insist on remaking all the sitcoms in the local accent. Whereas yeah. we just got them imported. So we had to come to terms with all sorts of American accents and Irish accents and regional British accents and all the rest yeah. of it, or be very bored because there was nothing else on the telly. Yeah, but it's yeah. like our, all of our fun stuff has been really siphoned from other cultures, mm-hmm. you know, like all of the reality shows, we just take them and remake them and then put, you know, just throw a gun or two in there and now it's America. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm a comedian, so I love to make everything about me. Um, you know, when I went and was working in London, I found audiences responded to my style of comedy more open. They were more open to it than they are even in America. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm very dark, you know? You are. But yeah, I love like- it. I love it. That's an, and while we won't, you know, this is, I'm hoping that all the cockroaches will go and, and uh, watch you on YouTube because I think they'll really love you and you're really cathartic and you go into the hard spaces and you yell at them and I love it. You swear at them, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and but it's funny because in America you would be surprised like people are can be very uh, buttoned up, like yeah. especially depending on where you are. Like if you're in San Francisco where you, you know, that used to be the city of like openness and like love and, you know, being yourself. But I found like, some of my biggest bombs were there because people are so almost, I guess, self-aware that they're scared to laugh at something that's dark like that, or they're afraid for me as opposed to just being like at ease with it, you know? And it's in, in the UK, total opposite. People are like, it was almost like the weirder and darker you were, the more they excited the audience was. I found it to be a way to engage like in a social setting that I was uncomfortable in, you know, like at a party, you don't necessarily know how to just start talking to people, but it would almost, it was almost just like a fallback. Like I would think of something that happened to me that week or in my life that was relatable to what the other person was saying, but that was sort of embarrassing to me, you know, but I'd make them laugh, but now you've like made the situation really comfortable for everybody yeah. because you've been willing to admit something that could be like, you know, scary to a stranger. And now they're like, oh, I'll talk to you, you know? And it just, that's sort of like, I guess, just how it ended up happening. Like anything that I felt bad about, you could like tell someone about in a funny way. And now you don't have to feel as bad about something and you've made a social situation easier for you to navigate. Well, a small comedy room is definitely a social situation. And how comfortable did you feel initially? Probably more comfortable than I should have if that makes sense. Cause like, right when you start, like when I started, I, I did an open mic, like, well, how, how I really started doing comedy. I didn't know how to do it. So I Googled, you know, stand up comedy in New York and I found these comedy classes. So I took one and, you know, I wrote eight minutes and you did a student show and it felt really good. And then I was like, well, what do I do now? And the teacher was like, well, now you look for open mics. Because I wasn't gonna like pay. I I, I knew like I'm not gonna take these comedy classes, but I knew since I had paid for the one, I would do that work, you know. So the first open mic I went to, I, I got voted set of the night, and then I went oh. to another one immediately after that because in New York you can do multiple mics a night. And on that one, I got played off the stage by the music because I had run the light and I had no idea what I was doing. So, but I went in that feeling very confident. So. <laughs> You know, it's a series of ups and downs, even within a matter of like four hours, you know. So how do you feel coming off when you're finished? It depends on the set. You know what I mean? Like for me, I'm pretty, I would say I'm pretty hard on myself. Like the amount of times I've had a set where I was like, I have killed I have, I have done that, that like I have killed is less than five where I'm like straight shot all the way through. I've done everything exactly the way I wanted to do it. And it went how I wanted, you know, I would say less than five. So if I've had a set where like, it was just okay, where like people laughed, 
but like I knew I wasn't up to my standard, it won't even matter to me that it wasn't a bomb, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I'll be like, like that went fine. I would rather have the bomb, you know, I'd, I'd rather have a bomb than like a set where I'm like, it was okay. So you don't do meh. You know, because you don't do meh. Especially before like lockdown hit, I had really found a spot of like, it takes a while to figure out how to make you, or if that's your goal, like for me, I, it's like, I want to be the most me I am up there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I had found a stride in that. Like I was as weird and, and myself as I've ever been. Um, and I've had to learn a lot during this lockdown. One of the things I do is I, I'm very hard on myself you know, and like, and I hold myself to a very high standard that like, is of my own creation, you know, like, (laughs) and having a bit of ease with myself, you know, because it's like, especially in a scenario where it's like, I can't, I'm like a workhorse, and I can't do anything, you know, Uh, but then I could be writing, but then you don't feel like writing, because you feel depressed that your entire life is like, pulverized you know um so it's like being gentle and being like all right that was just okay but you know what do I even know what I'm doing you know and like really beat myself up about it which is good in some ways because it keeps my standard high and it keeps me wanting to be better but it's like one of the important things in Melbourne is coffee and you've got to have a favorite coffee shop what's the best coffee shop in Melbourne? Uh, my kitchen. That is the only coffee I've had here so far. <laughs> that is so sad. It is, that is, it is sad, sad, but it is a correct answer. Look, I'm, I'm a coffee snob in the sense that if it's not a dollar fifty with milk and two sugars, I don't want it. Yeah. Like, so in I'm, Melbourne, I'm, I'm, in Melbourne, would you go yeah. to Starbucks? Look, I, to use the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the right answer. That's the right answer. And by the way, there is a divide of opinion here. My opinion is that the best coffee place in Melbourne is Pellegrini's in Burke Street and Jude's is... Miss Jackson's in St Kilda. But if you had said Starbucks... You idiot! um, You can't survive in Melbourne. No, that's fine. Yeah, Starbucks is a glorified toilet to me. And that's where we're saying thank you and see you later to Catherine for now. Catherine, come back to Melbourne. It's all good here now. We love you and you'll love it here. Stay safe and stay well. It's time for us cockroaches all to step into the spotlight. Somebody shoot out that spotlight. Spotlights ain't nothing but jive. And us cockroaches, we hate that spotlight. But today we've got a spotlight specialist with us, Jane Gilmore. Welcome to Radioactive Cockroach. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be here. And you've re- you've written a book that I have um, by my bed and I refer to fairly often. Would you like to tell us about it? Uh, the book's called Fixed It. It was as a single social media post. Um, I was, well, still am a journalist and I was at the time writing quite a lot about the way the media was reporting on men's violence against women and sort of not really getting anywhere. And then I was on a tram one day and an article came up in my feed. I think it was something like Townsville Police Day, a selfie led to stabbing murder. And I crossed out the headline and rewrote it as man's choice to stab a woman leads to stabbing murder and post, put it out on social media and didn't think anything more of it until I came back to my phone a few hours later and it had just exploded. And I thought, there we go. Uh, like a picture is quite literally worth a thousand words because those thousand word articles that I was writing weren't doing anything. But that one picture just, I think, just made it really obvious and clear to people. So I started doing that regularly and it led to aspects of it as a master's and then I wrote the book and 
it's still going today. So Fixed It is the short name. The longer name for it is Invisible Perpetrators and Blameable Victims. Yes. So it's taking victim blaming out of headlines and putting perpetrators back in when they're erased from headlines, as they so often are. And the cockroaches there, the people that have been affected or harmed by sexual assault, know that you're doubly invisible because you're protected with your anonymity. But that also means, in a sense, you don't exist. That hasn't been quite true of the case that hit the headlines yesterday, which is Craig McLaughlin. People do know who these women are, and it's not reported who they are, but we kind of know who they are. Mm. And he was not exonerated. He was acquitted, not exonerated. The magistrate very clearly said that he had actually done the things that the women had said he'd done. They did not lie. They did not collaborate. They did not lie. She also had a fair bit to say about his lawyer. I've just got a few clips here that I think might set the tone a bit. I think what they said to to young Craig when accusations kind of hit the media three or four years ago was... Yes, yeah, so he he looked around and I think he found what he thought was uh, pretty much the lawyer from heaven in Stuart Littlemore. Yeah, because I think what what these uh, respondents, what these defendants really like in court is a showman who will attack the women and really provide them with some cathartic entertainment. And he certainly got that. You know, it looked a little bit like this. Yeah, it looked like a real love affair outside the court there. But the headlines haven't... They haven't said any of this. It's been pretty flat. And then the been watching it emerging, the stories are coming out fairly clearly about um, lawyer rebuked. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing a shift? Uh, yeah, I actually do think the media has changed since I started Fixed It back in 2014. Things have definitely changed since then. Yeah. Um, the sort of stories that I'm seeing come out now are much more informed. They're going into a lot more detail about, so the Craig McLaughlin case, they're going into a lot more detail about what the magistrate said instead of just you know, shrieking McLaughlin exonerated. Yeah, beloved actor. Or in, you yes. know, it, 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 it's not there. Um, I, but I think also that's partly because the audience has changed as well. It's an argument that journalists have all the time of, are we chasing the audience or is the audience chasing us? Yes. And it's bit chicken and the egg. But I think both the audience and journalists have changed. There's obviously pockets <coughs> Daily Mail, where there's stupid things still going on. But the vast majority of the audience does know more about this kind of stuff now. And I don't think anybody would get away with glorifying him now, given what the magistrate said and the fact that that's on the public record. And the courts make it really easy for journalists to get hold of that so they can publish accurately. You know, all these things make a difference. Also, the, the magistrate is to be commended for what she said. I think she's you know, named the part of the act mm. that Stuart Middlemore was clearly in breach of. It was all in camera. However, there's been enough reports for us to believe the magistrate that he was in mm. breach of it. Well, I think the, the magistrates and the courts have also changed. You know, it's, it's everybody's sort of changing at the same time and for the same reasons, but everybody's getting a better understanding of violence against women and how it occurs and how those power dynamics play out. And that's changing the way judges and magistrates react and their comments and their sentencing remarks, which changes the way the media is reporting it, which changes the way the audience is hearing it and understanding it. So there's a, a feedback loop that's going on that I think is really positive. I think it is too. And I think that's, it's partly there's um, a shift in responsibility in the attitude of the media and which part of their audience they appeal to. And I was even looking at Sky News is essentially saying no winners here. You know, what these women have gone through, blah, 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 blah. It, it's kind of the anti-establishment stance that Sky News likes, but it could have been a very sexist one, and it wasn't. Mm. Well, let's wait and see what Sky After Dark's got to say. But yes. <laughs> yes. 
I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm not going to try and steal Mr. Bolt's thunder there. Um, yeah, but no, I, I think there definitely has been an improvement, which which I find really gratifying to see because I mean things were really awful a few years back, and it's I think it it genuinely makes a difference to the women that have lived through something like that because the people around them understand it better and are more able to react, not always in the best way, but certainly they've got more information to go on now than, than they used to. And I, I think that makes a big difference to everyone. I think there's a little bit more understanding in the community now too, which is something that Louise mm. Milligan's highlighted in her latest book, Witness, um, is how scarifying an incompetent cross-examination can be. And look, I'm a bit of an insider here. I've been through more than one hearing uh, with more than one style of cross-examination. And um, tearing the witness to pieces, tearing the victim to pieces, it's pretty clear from the evidence that you don't get a better outcome for your, def- for your client if you're a defence lawyer. No, I think it used to be true. It, it used to be based on this idea of the ideal victim. So if you could discredit the victim, then obviously, you know, if they're a bad woman or a bad child, then obviously nothing they say is credible. But again, because juries are made up of people and the, the jury pool, the, the general public, do understand these things better now and the likelihood of somebody being horrified at the very idea of tearing somebody apart after they've been through something like that would really, really put you off. Whereas, say, 20 years ago, it would have been evidence that they were a bad person and an untrustworthy person. I think what they're actually aiming aiming at is the collapse of the witness, collapse of the yes. victim, so that she appears to be incoherent and irrational, whereas um, most judges and magistrates won't tolerate it going through to that extent now and call a break. Mm. The other thing is that um, I don't think Louise Milligan expressed enough value for is the witness support systems that are, are there now so that um, mm. certainly they will they will go with you and help you to understand that an outcome is not the same as a verdict. And we've got a verdict yes. here, but it is not the outcome. And I think also it's a change in the attitude in the courts too, That whereas victims, survivors used to be seen as they're a piece of evidence. They were not a person. They did not have representation. They didn't exist as far as the court process was concerned as anything other than than evidence. And changing that to understand them as as a, a victim of a crime, and therefore that part of the recompense for having survived that crime is to be given the support that you need to to put your life back together. And that starts before the, the verdict comes in. That starts at before the court process even begins. Oh, you're allocated. I was certainly allocated a witness support person from the moment charges were formally laid. Mm. And that just meant that that everyone could get on with their work too because um, lawyers can get very focused and busy on the legal processes and they're not necessarily the best people to keep you in the loop. Whereas you have have a, a properly trained social worker to go to go through it with you, it makes a huge difference to, to your perception of the of the process. So, look, I think we are looking at a cultural shift. I think the cockroaches can be so. heartened mm. by that. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I was really hoping you could workshop some of these headlines with me, but they're, they're not as bad as I thought they were going to be. Um, I mean, they're still... You know, this, it's not ideal. It's some of them I've seen today, I thought, well, it's not the way I would write it. But so then, what would you have written only- for some of them? I think I would have made the headlines more clear about what the magistrate actually said. Yes. That the witnesses involved were, their their testimony was believed, that the women told the truth, that um, the change of consent laws, and again, this is one of the other things that's happened, is it, it is so difficult to get law reform commissions to change laws so that, that to stop them protecting men who are violent to women. Yes. But that actually happens, and to me, I mean, apart from the fact that he was found not guilty, to me that's actually the really big story that the magistrate said, well, if it was under today's laws, it would have been a different story. Yep. So it's it's almost an example of the fact that that change in the consent laws has made a difference. Well, the only headline I've found that takes that in is the UK Daily Mail, and it's one hell of a headline. Craig McLaughlin is found not guilty, capital letters, of sexually assaulting his co-stars from the Rocky Horror Show. As magistrate says, verdict may have been different 
if it weren't for a legal technicality. <laughs> that's, mm. that's a very long headline. Well, the Daily Mail specialises in long headlines, yes. and it's, I have to say, unusual for them to write something that I'd actually go, yeah, that's the way you should write it. But I was, every now and again they do. I was a bit and astonished. One, yes. <laughs> but that's one that, yes, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And, and that's what a headline is supposed to do, is tell you in one sentence the very basics, the most important points of the story. And it's really interesting doing the work that I do and looking at the headlines that come up, what editors think is the important point of the story. Yep. And so often it's the perpetrator's excuse for his violence Yes, or um, the things that he says about the woman he was violent to, that's the, that's the most important thing for people to know. Well, the other you one know, I found is that... It's a really interesting perspective. Is that the um, judge notes... Well, it's actually a magistrate, but that's... We'll let that go. Um, judge notes possible self-entitled sense of humour. Yes. <laughs> but finds McLaughlin not guilty of assaults. I, I quite like that one. <laughs> Yes, and I think I saw another one somewhere about the magistrate being forced to find him not guilty or, or, or not forced, forced is maybe too strong a word. I can't remember exactly what the word was. But yeah, certainly obliged. It was obviously saying, yeah, I think obliged. Um, yeah. I think that was because I think that was the word that she used and that was what was in the headline. And again, you know, he was found not guilty and you do have to report that, but the reasons he was found not guilty is equally important and that obliged to find him not guilty, which I think is what she said. Yeah. That's telling the story. That's telling you what actually happened. I think the community is becoming to a broader understanding of not guilty being not able to leap that very high bar, that burden of mm. proof. It's not the same as innocent and it's certainly not exonerated. Um, no, and it's absolutely not that the woman lied. No, it's not. Or that she was not believed. Or that she was not believed. And yeah. the magistrate yeah. made that really clear that these were brave and honest witnesses, but they couldn't establish that he believed they were not consenting. Now they don't have to. <laughs> Only that a reasonable person would yeah. have an understanding that it was not something that they would consent were consenting to. But uh, they're unlikely to be in such strife now that we've got intimacy directors as well, intimacy managers. Intimacy is a word for a phrase, an industry phrase for managing um, intimacy on screen and on stage. And um, people are a lot less vulnerable to this so-called... Well, that's good. Yeah, this so-called um, grey area where everyone's making um, jokes. Yeah. Yes, uh, that old chestnut, the yes, joke. the joke. There's these two circles on the Venn diagram. One is called humour and the other is called jokes. And when they overlap, that's a really nice sweet spot. But it doesn't happen as often as some jokers think. <laughs> exactly. It certainly doesn't. Yeah. You're continuing your work in this area, Jane? Um, I am. It's definitely required a lot less than it used to be. Uh, when I first started back in 2014, I was doing two or three a day and that was just picking out the worst ones because I didn't have time to do more because I had you know, an actual job and everything as well. But I, I could have done it full time and yes. done overtime and still not run out of things to do. Um, but these days, while I, I sort of do occasionally have to take a break from it because it's not the kind of thing you can immerse yourself in all day, every day. Not um, healthily, no. No. <laughs> but I do find even when I go back now and look over because I get all the Google alerts, um, I'll, some days I'll just save them and think, no, no, not today, not today. And then if I go back through them and I think, well, no, there's they're actually, I mean, there's a few that are not great, but it's not the really egregious victim-blaming train crashes that used to go on even five years ago. Um, yeah. it, it really, really changed, which, which is really encouraging. And I think that's got an enormous amount to do, as I said, with, with the audience, with the audience pushing back. Yeah, the ones that still want to blame those victims, are they changing or are they disappearing into dark places? <laughs> um, I think in the mainstream publications they're changing, but that doesn't mean that the people who think that way have disappeared. I think they're heading off to the, the dark corners of the internet. But they've always been in the dark corners of the internet. It's, I, I would like to say we could one day live in a world where they disappear completely, but I think that's 
that's not going to happen. Well, the crimes are still happening. So clearly, yes, exactly. Yeah. But I, I think if we can make those ideas that, that men are not responsible for their choices to be violent or that women cause violence that's committed against them, I think if we can remove those ideas or those myths from mainstream understanding of these things, then I think that can make an enormous difference. Can I just thank you on behalf of all the cockroaches for the work you've done in making our stories audible in a respectful way and emboldening a lot of us to come forward and to speak the truth because it's only through the the courage of of those victims in coming forward and calling it out that we're Mm, actually seeing the headlines that you can object to and we can all work towards this cultural change. Yes, I think it's anybody that that works in this space, it's always the, the thing that's always front and centre is the victims and survivors who who have such amazing courage yeah. and they are really the ones leading the way on changing people's understanding of it because they're really the only ones who can. Thank you, Jane, for all you have done and still do so that the cockroaches get less shriveled in the spotlight. It's time for the Ellen Stutzer. Dial and Stutzo are talking about cars. And that's Tracy Chapman. It's a good song, isn't it, Jane? Yeah. I will put the link up to her singing that because it'll get stuck in your head in the best possible way. It's a beautiful song. It's been around a while. You get a fast car I want a ticket to anywhere Maybe we make a deal Maybe together we can get somewhere Any place is better Starting from zero Got nothing to lose Maybe we'll make something Me, myself, I got nothing to prove Really nice story about Escaping and having a fresh start. Something us cockroaches understand. You got a fast car. I got a plan to get us out of here. Been working at the convenience store. Managed to save just a little bit of money. Won't have to drive too far. Just cross the border and into the city. You and I can both get jobs. Finally see what it means to be living. Got a problem Yeah, but the bottle That's the way it is He says his body's too old For working His body's too young To look like his My mama went off And left him She wanted more from life Than he could give I said somebody's got To take care of him So I quit school And that's what I did Okay, Judy, so today's uh, quiz is all the car clues from the age crossword. And this is the quick crossword by David Astle. Yeah, those crossword aficionados out there from Australia know that DA in the cryptic means don't attempt. Um, <laughs> and he, yeah, he's a nice guy, actually. Here are the clues. I'm proud that I got all these clues really easily. Car tool often used in tyre changing, Judy Stutz. Five five is a. It starts with W. And oh, uh, word, wheel brace. Wheel brace, excellent. Hooray! Car part that sends electricity to the spark plugs. A distributor. Hooray! Okay, car part that charges the battery. Alternator. Now, this is, could be many things, but it's only one thing, and the clue is car gauge, and it's 11 letters. Speedometer. Hooray! Car pedal, 11 letters. Accelerator. Hooray! Car component, mixing air and fuel. 
Uh, Burrita. Now, this is where I, I'll give you a hooray. Because I knew that was the answer, but it, when it came to the spelling, I got... You idiot! How do you spell it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have very wobbly spelling. I had a, a boyfriend that used to drive me down to the peninsula in a little blue Morris Minor. And every so oh, often, yeah. every so often, I'd come out of our, the the house that my family stayed in, and there'd be a little blue Morris Minor, and I'd think, "Oh, there's the boyfriend," and no, it was someone else on the beach with, a, with an identical little blue Morris Minor. I didn't think there were two left in the world. I thought they'd all just sort of, you know, <laughs> gone the way of all flesh or something. But no, there were two. And then later on, I met the guy with the little Morris Minor, and yet yeah, totally lost touch with the boyfriend. But the uh, guy with the other Morris Minor, still a good yeah. mate. Still a good mate. Him and his wife, him and his wife and kids, we've all hung out. So, yeah, the little links that follow us round, the little links that follow us round, and the stories about cars. What did you <laughs> did you have cars when you were young? Oh yeah, my parents stumped up two hundred and sixty dollars for uh, my scamp, my little yellow Honda scamp. A Honda scamp. Yeah. That's just like a lawnmower with a with a cabin, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a motorcycle engine uh, with with essentially a plastic car added on. Yeah. A little under fifty, she's rapid and she's nifty. She'll do hundred and fifty. Top speed, fifty miles an hour. I loved them. Yeah, oh. I, I I envied them. I wanted a Honda Scamp or a little Fiat. It was cheap. Yep, uh, it was. It went, and it, and it took me to uni. Safely to and from uni, and yeah. and did me, you know, into my working life for a little bit, and then you know saved up and bought something uh, a little bit more salubrious. Yeah. I think it was it was a Toyota Corolla. Judy, the scam. Um, you know, the listeners know that we, we know this story that you're about to tell. and But what they don't know is that I already knew this story and I thought it was apocryphal about yeah. what happened on the campus of University of Melbourne to a little Honda scamp in the 70s. No, no, it, it actually happened. Yeah, it, look, it was... I've met the apocrypha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was real. Tell us roughly yeah. what happened, Chief. It first got noticed uh, when I began to share a, a parking spot with a little Fiat. Ah, oh, well, see, that's why I think I want a Fiat or a Scamp, I think. Yeah, I think that's yeah. all part of part of the story. We could literally just, just share a parking spot. There was enough for, for two of us to share one spot. Yep. It was great. Yep. I was doing mathematics, so I was in the sciences and engineering building, and it got noticed, you know, this teeny tiny little car. Yeah. It didn't take long before some engineering students realised that one man on each corner could happily lift the car and move it around. Right. So it started as really just uh, little stuff like they'd, they'd, they'd move it two car spots down and whatever and it was all a bit amusing, you know. Then they got a bit ca- carried away and started to, to put the car in unusual places like okay. the gymnasium. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and, you know, it was all done in, in, in good humour. So, uh, so you're quite were, young and you needed it to get home. Were you ever kind of strange? Gonna drive you home tonight. No, no, there was always someone there to, you know, if I couldn't extricate myself from the spot, 
uh, there, there were people on hand to uh, assist me. Yeah, so you didn't um, feel you didn't feel picked on. I wasn't picked on or anything. It, no. it was just a lark to yeah. see if the mathematician could outthink <laughs> uh, the engineering boys, and it might be as simple as having to drive down some stairs. Yeah, to get out of a, a college, but they started to place the, this car in the most unusual places which would require me to use a rig that they will have set up to extricate myself. Okay, and, so it's a little bit like a computer game before computers. Computer <laughs> game before computers. The most memorable place that I, I recall was, it was in the middle of a pool, uh, under the water, not under the water. It was it was like on a platform, a platform on top over, of the water. Yeah, look, see, this is yeah. the one I thought was apocryphal because I used yeah. to walk past that pool to to get to choir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know they had all these braces and chains and things, so it was quite safe. But it was uh, one scary lash up because I, I took one look at it and I thought. I have got no idea <laughs> how to work this machinery to get my car back. So straight away I said, okay, you win this this round, I'll buy the beer. Fair that enough. Was the thing. In fact, I got it now. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And the best cold beer is Vic. Victoria Bitter. You bought the beer, yeah. I bought the beer, so... <laughs> Well, uh, just for, for those that aren't familiar with the University of Melbourne, the swimming pool is like in a greenhouse that opens onto the main thoroughfare that passes right through the main campus. There, there were, I don't know how many people there gathered around watching uh, my little car be rescued from a terrible peril, <laughs> but it was never really in peril and it was rescued by the people who put it in peril. I don't know, had they bribed the sports management people or? I don't know how they did it. And yeah. that was the thing. I, I, some of the stuff they, they did, it I mean, must have clearly. taken some serious planning. Well, and, and I think that was the fun for them. And I know their professor was in on it. Okay. So I know that, uh, I mean, I don't think he physically helped but I think you. But he, if they said hypothetically, Professor, <laughs> how might we do this? We got where this might car, we get with the equipment? You yeah. know. So I think it, it became a a bit of a learning exercise for them. Yep. It certainly was a learning exercise for me in applied mathematics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and clearly I've gone down in the annals because yeah. it, my car and myself have become apocryphal. That's football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars. Football and meat pies, I can't remember a car before our old green Holden station wagon until then my father traded it in for a Toyota Crown. Ooh, you must have been rich. And every luxury, including twin radio speakers. It's a very good year to own a Toyota Crown. Oh, yes, a very good year. Didn't feel it. Um, we had a crappy old caravan and we spent eight months with this rig going around remote Australia on a lot of, you know, we're talking the early 70s. In fact, we just yeah. left Darwin before the cyclone in 74. Uh, living on a... a, a an airman's wage. Yeah. Uh, Corona was as good as got. And Corona's new two-litre super-responsive engine turns a mountain into a molehill. The new super-responsive Corona. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's all relative. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, um, it is all, it's all relative. I used to work in remote Aboriginal communities, so I used to go from community to community, yep. maintaining telecommunications, but also teaching computer skills, 
So my employer had given me this massive Toyota Land Cruiser. And me Toyota Land Cruiser. She's a bloody doozer. They gave me a course on how to drive it. And which uh, petrol to and, put in it? And petrol. I had a I had a, a trailer yes. so I could carry my own diesel, you know, camping equipment and whatever. And you and you went by yourself? No, I had an interpreter. Yeah. Um, I tried, tried to learn the local languages, but <laughs> they just laughed at me. Yeah. <laughs> when, uh, that, when with the Toyota Crown, we were travelling through a lot of um, Aboriginal communities because that was my father's work, working with Aboriginal education, and I was I I, I used to be able to get by with Bintjajara, and I can still hear it a bit, but nah. No, yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. language. Some folk had broken down, gotten lost and got themselves into a bit of a, a situation and we came across them and uh, I had to use the EPIRB, the emergency rescue beacon, yep. set it off uh, uh, to bring the rescue services uh, a run and uh, give them water and, and, and try and look after them until, uh, you know, the flying doctor got there we picked up a number of hitchhikers, international people, mainly from Canada, US, parts yeah. of Europe, that really didn't understand. Um, yeah. And they would head off, you know, we're talking the mid-70s. None of those roads were sealed and they were all really quite yeah. remote and they would head off from, you know, whatever small community they'd wound up in and decide they'd walk and stick their thumb out and, of course... Australia is such a safe place to hitchhike. <laughs> God. Well, no one dreadful picked <laughs> them up. They just nearly died of thirst. We've got a oh. couple of people that were really struggling to stand up, were seriously dehydrated. When she said she'd organised a lift, we said, who with? And does, is, does he want you to pay? She said, oh, no, he just said he'd expect me to be grateful. Oh, right. So we explain okay. what – I'm sitting there while my parents explain what all this means for the 14-year-old me. <laughs> so we, my parents convinced quite a few solo travellers that staying alive was uh, preferable to wandering yeah. off into the wilderness. Yeah, but still beautiful country. My interpreter taught me how to hunt. Yep. Uh, I sucked. Uh, showed me how to find water yep. and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, if I got lost in the desert, I'd always have my EPIRB with me. Yeah. <laughs> you get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better. And now we, uh, we both drive sensible four-cylinders, don't we? Yeah, we both drive our, our, our little four-cylinder Mazdas. Do you know my car, my Mazda, is has still got the same tank of petrol that I put in it in March. <laughs> <laughs> and that's lockdown for you. more your friends than you do your kids. I'd always hope for better Thought maybe together You and me find it I got no plans I ain't going nowhere Take your fast car And keep on driving Your brother bought a new car, Jude He bought a new car Yeah uh, And it was yellow Yeah uh, And he came to uh, We have regular family gatherings And he said to uh uh, everybody, oh, look, uh, check out the yellow car outside that uh, I bought. Um, now, as you know, in our family, for historical reasons, we do not tolerate Volkswagens in any way, shape or form. No, you don't because? Uh, my mother was a slave labourer during the Second World War at for the, Volkswagen. At the age of... Stephen. Let me present to you my folks, folks, fucking blues. So we just sort of have a deep seated mistrust of the karma, essentially, around Volksies. So she goes to the window, she looks out, 
She doesn't say anything. And then she goes into the garage. And next thing you know, we hear all this banging from the street. And we all rush out and we can see my mum beating to death this yellow Volkswagen Beetle. Right. Do they sort of curl up and die easily? Uh, they, they do. They do. Uh, especially with my mother wielding the uh, aforesaid, uh, I think it was a matic. Oh, for goodness sake. She meant, <laughs> then my brother said, no, Mum, not the Volkswagen, the Holden Commodore. So she beat up someone else's box. <laughs> we, uh, yes, we, we quietly knocked on the door and, and said, little old lady had a brain freeze, we'll pay for it. Yes. Because, uh, uh, yeah, my nephew is a panel beater. Okay. And, so uh, he so, probably so, bought it back better than it left. So, so yeah, it was it was pristine when it was returned. But uh, <laughs> oh <my> yeah, <laughs> well, you know that's a really that's a good story about trauma <laughs> casting a long shadow. Because I think there are a few cockroaches out there who, given a matic, might want to deal with the echoes of their trauma in a yeah. similar way. But do we recommend it? Ah, uh, my mother seemed to enjoy it. <laughs> uh, for the rest of the family, it, it, it was a bit of a trauma. Yes. <laughs> but uh, my mother thoroughly enjoyed beating the car to uh, a, a small yellow pulp. Wow. Was not at all worried about the money that she had to pay. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth every cent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think she found it very therapeutic. I remember when we were driving, driving in your car Speed so fast, it felt like I was drunk City lights lay out before us And your arm felt nice, wrapped around my shoulder And I, I, had a feeling that I belonged I, I, had a feeling I could be someone Be someone, be someone You got a fast car I got a job that pays all our bills Instead of drinking late at the bar Some more your friends than you do your kids I'd always hope for better Thought maybe together you and me find it I got no plans, I ain't going nowhere Take your fast car and keep on driving You got a fast car Fast enough so you can fly away You gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way We've been running a bit of a theme today A theme of finding hope and humour in hard stories. And that song of Tracy Chapman and the story behind it, it's a good one. And now we're going to leave you with some comfort inspired by a hard story. Tradition has it that the Jewish city of Bethlehem a couple of thousand years ago was the scene of a massacre of all the boy children under two at the behest of King Herod. There's nothing in the historic record outside the Gospels, but Bethlehem was a small town and probably had only a dozen or so infant boys. No documents would have been kept in the face of something so unremarkable in that age as the death of a dozen children. So it seems all the more fitting that such a beautiful carol should emerge as a comfort for all who mourn such things. And so, take it easy and be soothed by this lullaby, the Coventry Carol, performed by Anuna. <laughs>